Welcome to Encouraging Change, a podcast that explores the relationship between motivational interviewing and peer recovery support. Your hosts, Laura Saunders and Chris Kelly, will engage in a conversation that combines their professions and passions, the spirit of motivational interviewing, and the power of peer support. Laura is a Wisconsin State Project Manager for the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, and a seasoned motivational interviewing trainer. Chris is a project manager for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and an expert on peer recovery support services. So thank you for joining us today and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode 10 of our podcast. Today, we're going to talk about valuing communication through active listening. And today, in addition to our usual Chris Kelly, we also have a guest with us. We have Scott Caldwell from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. And we are thrilled today to have Scott. Scott is a consultant in the Bureau of Prevention, Treatment, and Recovery. He is one of about 60 staff in that department who focus on training and technical assistance and consultation. And what Scott has particular expertise in is in motivational interviewing and in SBIRT. And Scott has also some particular skillfulness in certified peer recovery. And so we have invited him to be with us here today. So thank you, Scott, for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, Laura and Chris. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Scott, would you take just a minute and tell us a little bit about your connection to peer support? Well, peer support is near and dear to my heart. I've been in the human services field for three decades. It's been the only career I've known, and yet my entry into it was based on my own lived experience with really severe uh, substance use problems and mental health challenges. So peer support is what got me into recovery, kept me in recovery, and arguably really saved my life. So I've made a career in human services, but I go back to the early days of recovery for making it possible. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think everyone listening, all the peers out there in the world listening can relate to that journey. Usually what brings us into this field is some sort of personal experience, and we want to change that for others that are still experiencing substance use challenges. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, you got it. Today, we're going to dig into valuing communication through active listening. And so when I say that, we're talking about one of the core competencies for peer support, which is values communication. And it seems like a slam dunk no-brainer for peers, like that that we come in and we want to use our good listening skills to meet with peers. We often hear, meet them where they're at help figure out where they are in their recovery journey, come alongside partner and support. And what I've learned over the last several years is really digging into the evidence base behind motivational interviewing. So when I first learned this as a skill, I couldn't even really tell you what an evidence-based practice was. Um, I went through the peer training myself and I thought motivational interviewing was really cool. I thought it was really applicable to many different facets of my life. 
But I had no understanding of what, okay, so you're calling it an evidence-based practice. I don't work in clinical facilities. That doesn't matter to me. It gave me some cool tricks, but that was about it. So I'm hoping you can enlighten all of us. What do we mean when we say it's an evidence-based practice and how do we know that? Yeah, there's so many different forms of evidence or ways of knowing, but regarding evidence-based practice, it's a specific form of way of knowing. It's based on research. It's based on randomized clinical trials. That's the gold standard of research in human services, health services. And motivational interviewing is hands down the most carefully researched and studies practice in health and human services. Um, To date, there have been conducted over 1,500 randomized clinical trials, motivational interviewing. There are over 180 meta-analyses. So that's kind of an analysis of multiple studies looking for themes in results. it points to a couple of really big things. One is that motivational interviewing works. It's very effective in having change conversations with people and helping people to make positive changes in their lives. So that's the big takeaway from that volume of evidence. But the other thing, and this is what I think motivational interviewing really can offer peer support is that the research at this point, Chris, has really specified the mechanisms of action. So we know MI works, but how does it work? That's really been increasingly flushed out through studies. Turns out that high quality listening and accurate empathy is one of the most important ingredients. Well, and I think we can, again, for our peer audience, I think we we can definitely relate to that and understand that. We might have learned our ORs in our foundational peer training, and we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper into that. But what I'm curious about, so what I see in the peer field sometimes is we might hear evidence-based practice and push back just a little bit. We might think everything evidence-based comes from the clinical realm. We're all, as a a peer workforce, really cautious about not being co-opted by the medical field or the clinical side of things. So we tend to want to really firmly root ourselves in the fidelity of peer support. And specifically inviting you today to talk about it because there doesn't need to be the tension that as peers, we're using an evidence-based practice. And so I'm hoping our conversation today, we can just kind of go a little bit deeper with that. Yeah, the, the tension is really understandable because peer support is based on lived experience as a way of knowing. And that's kind of on the far end of a continuum of ways of knowing to have that very personal experience And then on the other end of the continuum is like the scientific studies (laughs) that are carefully controlled, carefully designed, constructed by, you know, researchers, published 
in peer-reviewed journal. I mean, there's this whole industry of research and that's a whole nother way of knowing. So that tension between ways of knowing really makes sense. And I, I, would, I would suggest that in the spirit of, of lived experience, that when really effective communication happens and specifically really high quality listening, accurate empathy uh, with another, that there's a ton of evidence in that moment of effectiveness, uh, practice-based effectiveness, if you will. So there's evidence-based practice, there's practice-based evidence with every person you're gonna have a conversation with. And so maybe Chris, we can kind of talk a little bit about practice-based evidence and how do you know that you're listening well? How do you know that the person with whom you're attempting to understand is responding in a really positive way. To touch on as well, as we're going through the conversation and, and through my own learnings with MI is how long we spend in that phase, like that preparatory phase of asking really good questions and reflecting back to the person accurately what we're hearing and summarizing our conversations and, and, and all that prep work and to really the planning is so much further down the road than what I sometimes see it in peer practice. Like we get quick to, I have the solutions, I have the answers, I have access to all these resources and I'm just gonna bring all that in in our first conversation. Um, I kind of wanna go there too with you on the evidence behind that preparatory phase, all that hard work we're doing, all the tilling of the soil to plant those seeds of recovery really deeply so they root. Yeah, isn't it so human to want to be helpful by offering advice, by problem solving, by, ooh, let's come up with a plan for next steps. And regardless of professional affiliation, it's easy to fall into those traps. And I think what motivational interviewing has to offer peers, the, the, the process of peer support is this core set of interpersonal communication skills summarized by ORs and for peer specialists to figure out how to learn those skills, how to integrate those skills, and to have those skills as a foundation of effective peer support where those very human traps are kind of avoided. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does the science of motivational interviewing give us any clues on, I know it doesn't give us a firm timeline for every person because every person's different, but does it give us any clues or guidance of what that preparatory work might look like or a time frame to it? Yeah, and again, the, the research is with motivational interviewing is there's so much volume to it. And what the research shows in the broad brush strokes is that that core set of interpersonal skills, ORs, 
asking open questions, looking for strengths and offering affirmations of those specific strengths, really high quality listening and reflection, and then summarizing as a, also a form of listening, that when professionals are able to demonstrate those skills at a really high level of competency, that it predicts positive outcomes for people who are involved in those conversations. It predicts positive change for people who are trying to improve their lives. And conversely, when professionals are low in those skills, and maybe there might even be elements of that, those very human elements of wanting to direct and advise and maybe even warn a little bit or problem solve, that that low skills of ORs and the presence of those kind of more directive aspects actually also are predictive and they predict people staying stuck and not For me, reflecting on my own practice, I had incredible discomfort in sitting in somebody else's pain. And so I thought the quickest way, and in the moment, I wasn't, I wasn't clear on this. So this is all post-practice, like me looking back at the way I engaged with somebody I might be providing services to was, I was so, so, I had so much discomfort with their pain and sitting in that pain with them that I rushed to solution because it was, it was hard. It was difficult and it felt stuck. And I felt a bit like I, a bit like I was withholding solutions from them and even people pressuring, well, I just don't know what to do. And so, of course, to me, when I heard that, that was like door wide open, just throw the solutions their way. And so I didn't do a lot of the ORS work, especially when, like I said, somebody comes and they're like, I'm just stuck and I have no idea what to do. I went straight to planning and in providing those, those answers because I felt like an invitation was made. Any advice out there that you can give to our audience about how do we resist that urge and maybe some key mantras we can be telling ourselves when we're sitting in that discomfort? Well, and Chris, you're, you're really identifying a, a deep insight here that it is what we tell ourselves going into conversations with people. So when we think about the ORS skills, those are really kind of uh, behavioral. You know, you can observe them, you can measure them in motivational interviewing, you can measure them, you can assess them, but they're they're kind of behavioral manifestations. And your deep insight is that behavior is one thing, but what is the peer specialist thinking going into it? And when people think, I'm going to really come alongside this person, and I'm going to just be with the struggle. And I'm going to choose, I'm deciding right now to choose to not problem solve, but to see that the person has everything that they need right in right within themselves, in their natural supports in their life. And my job is to listen carefully and draw it out and look for strengths along the way. And that kind of attitude or 
that self-talk, if you will, going into every encounter of peer support can really lead to the manifestation of those ORS skills really powerfully. What, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the, the attitude behind the skills? I definitely think there's, there's layers to that question. And so we, as peers, we go through a foundational training there's not a lot of targeted peer support CEU opportunities. So not a lot of continuing education opportunities that really are tailored to peer support. And so that's part of working me working for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence now is really opening that up and thinking about, well, we have these foundational trainings all across the nation. Uh, what can we do to help peers continue that learning? And not just on the evidence-based practice, but ways to be really self-reflective. And as a peer supervisor, that was really important to me that the peers that I supervised had time for that self-reflection. I knew nothing of the mighty, which we'll talk about in a later episode, and ways to concretely measure and observe somebody's work, but not just go, go, go all the time. I think a lot of us as peers too, what I'm seeing in the workforce is we have burdensome caseloads. I'm sure it's true of the clinicians we work with as well. So then we see, again, that layer of an overburdened clinician who's probably been put in a supervisory role, whether or not they have training to be a supervisor. It's kind of just touching base. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? be doing? Okay, move on. And then the peers with burdensome caseloads and really not knowing how to manage that. So I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done in the, in the peer workforce to kind of, and, and I think in the treatment world in general, so that people are getting the best services possible. Yeah, and you're getting at a, a close companion attitude of you know, going into a, an encounter of peer support ready to listen, ready to understand. And the companion attitude is, and I can grow these skills. I can uh, dig into this skill set to provide the best peer support possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was so cool to know and learn more about motivational interviewing and actually see by maybe doing a, a lot more work up front with myself and my own skill set, my own practice, it made me more effectual. It made my work more high impact. The people I worked with were more prepared to seek their own solutions without my support as well. Because through active listening and practicing the oars, I was empowering them to seek their own solutions because a lot of times that peer support is the first time in a long time somebody has come along and said, you know what's best for you. And I'm here to stand beside you while we, we figure that out. And, it, and it's interesting. It's really kind of a parallel process here where peer support empowers people and in the parallel here, evidence-based practice, like motivational interviewing, can empower peer support specialists to get good at these skills. Because when we talk about active listening, what does that mean? And that's, I think, a real 
offering that motivational interviewing has to peer support is that it's very clearly described. We have a four-step framework of, of listening. Uh, it's a measurable skill. It's an accessible skill. It's a teachable skill. It's a learnable skill. But we actually describe and, and define and operationalize it. Mm -hmm. And that empowers people to learn it because it's hard to learn something that's vague mm -hmm. or general or not specified. And motivational interviewing takes those aura skills and reflective listening in particular and really clearly defines them. Four steps to listening, several different types of reflections, best practices in offering reflection and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, I think we're coming up on the end of our time today, and I just want to thank you for being here and sharing your expertise and demystifying how motivational interviewing is an evidence-based practice. And so hopefully, as peers, we're, we're less intimidated by that language, and we start to embrace that language. And I feel like as a profession, we're really empowered when we use that language. It goes a long way with a lot of the systems that we work within, if we can demonstrate that we effectively use an evidence-based practice to fidelity. That's pretty cool when we get there. People want to be effective in what they do. Yes. I think we're going to have you come back in a couple episodes. Looking forward to that. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. You thank got you, it. Scott. I look forward to continuing the conversation. This podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, which are funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this recording are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Thank you again for joining us on the Encouraging Change podcast. If you are a new listener, please follow us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes current YouTube channel to access many more free products and resources just like this.